Today I'm going to be talking about how much players should fear death, how to join your party's party as a DM, and a special Halloween one-shot that I'm developing. This is Dungeon Man Dragon Master. It's the Dragon Master! Before we get anywhere, I do need to apologize. I'm dealing with some allergy things today, so going to have a little bit of a kind of sound of my voice. Appreciate you sticking around. So let's talk about death. Uh, players can die in D&D. That's a thing, right? And in D&D, when your player dies, generally speaking, nothing happens to the player. You just roll up a new character. So to a certain extent, it doesn't really make a difference. And I think that's okay because it's a game. You know, you don't want to be super punished for the game. Even in any other game you play, if your character dies, you respawn. So it's just that this being a storytelling experience, you can't just respawn. It doesn't make sense that way. But I know what you're thinking, but Zach, there are a ton of ways f to bring characters back from the dead. There are. It's not easy, though, and only certain people have access to that. And so I just want to get into that a little bit and talk about what actually happens with player character death. First of all, a player character dying is not really the easiest thing in the world to accomplish. You really have to want to kill that player character, or they really have to mess up strategically. For the most part, everything is kind of balanced naturally. And if you've got a balanced enough team, and you're good enough with combat, etc., etc., you can usually survive things. So, generally speaking, you won't really have to deal with it that much. But we also need to remember that it kind of scales with level. Do you know what I mean? Early levels, like level 1, level 2, level 3, level 4, uh, nobody really has access to do anything about death except for to stop you from rolling death saves with, like, Spare the Dying, which is a cantrip. But if you die at levels 1 through 4, most likely you're kind of screwed. There's not much you can do about it. And that is until you get to 5th level, which is when a character who has access to the spell can learn the spell Revivify. It's a 3rd level spell, um, and you can bring someone back from the dead if they died no more than one minute ago. Honestly, it's a very effective spell. Uh, if you're in combat and someone dies, you have 10 rounds to get to that person and cast Revivify, and once you do, they're no longer dead. It's pretty nice. So if you've got someone in your party who knows that, and a lot of Revivify is not, not everyone can learn it, but a lot of people can learn, a lot of classes can learn it. If you've got someone in your party with Revivify, you probably aren't worried about dying in combat anymore, unless they go down. So you're still a little worried about it, right? So it gets to be less big of a deal in those regards. Uh, the next spot that you get a resurrection spell, not the resurrection spell, um, is level nine, player character nine, uh, with a fifth level spell known as Raise Dead. Essentially, it's the same thing as Revivify, except it can go up to 10 days after death. Uh, and it can't heal any missing parts or anything. So if you get like decapitated or something, Raise Dead can't fix it. So we fear it a little less there, even if you're healer goes down or whoever has the spell even if they go down you can die and then they'll just bring you back tomorrow when they wake up or the next day or if you separate and go on two different quests and they come back but within a week then they can get you back right it's not as big of a deal but it's still a little worrisome because it's a fifth level spell so if they're far away and getting back to you you know there's just not as much there's also another option if you get decapitated or for some reason can't come back to life because you're missing your heart or something. There is another fifth level spell called Reincarnate, 
also can be within 10 days of the death. And when you come back, you're a new race with a new body. So that's kind of cool. If you, you know, it's, it's an interesting concept where you're still kind of there, but you're a different race. All your racial uh, features get switched out. And that's an interesting concept. I like that. Again, not as scary unless you really, really want to be your race or if something would really screw up. Let's say if you're a, a team of humans, elves, dwarves, gnomes, etc., etc., and in the worlds you're in, all tieflings are evil. Well, it's going to suck if you get reincarnated as a tiefling because it's a randomized choice. So who knows? And of course, at level 13, you get the seventh level spell, Resurrection. I think that only clerics and bards can learn this, so a little bit harder to come across. But the cool thing about this, it's 100 years after death is how long this can last. So you could resurrect pretty much anybody you've ever met. So that's nice. But let me read to you this part of the spell. Casting this spell to restore life to a creature that has been dead for one year or longer taxes you greatly. Until you finish a long rest, you can't cast spells again, and you have disadvantage on all attack rolls, ability checks, and saving throws. So just like how we don't want to ban Wish just because it's a really good spell, this in and of itself isn't that incredible, because while you can bring back pretty much anybody, if you're in a dangerous situation, this could get your healer killed. And if nobody has a way to bring people back to life except for your healer, well, guess what? Now nobody can come back to life. So you gotta worry about that kind of stuff. And finally, when you hit 17th level, you have access to the 9th level spell, Wish. No, I'm kidding. Uh, True Resurrection. It's essentially the same thing as Resurrection, but it goes uh, 200 years after death. And you don't even need to have the body in front of you. You can just say, I resurrect you, and the spirit comes in with a brand new body exactly the way it left, everything healed. So necessarily, death is only a fear that scales down as you level up. But is that so bad? I mean, we've talked about this before. Once you hit level 15, 16, you're getting to be incredibly powerful. I don't think that a lack of fear of death is that big of a deal. I mean, none of these resurrections will, will bring you back from the dead if you die of old age. So technically speaking, you can still die, die. It's just that whoever you are, you might have the ability to live a full life instead of dying in combat. And again... If you're that powerful, shouldn't that be okay? Isn't that what you're trying to accomplish? I mean, think about it. True Resurrection, you get at level 17 with ninth level spell slots, and that's, again, when you get spells like Wish and Time Stop. Like, the ability to do all these things, isn't that what you're striving for as a character? Once you hit level 20, you should be able to do whatever you want whenever you want. And as a DM, do we care? I don't think it's that big of a deal. I honestly think that this lack of fear of death as you level up makes a lot of sense for the world that we're in. It's a world of magic. It's a world of fantastic things that will never exist in our current world. In our current world, death is something that can be feared. But in this world, there's magic that stops that. Well, it makes sense that after a while, you might not be as afraid of it. I think it's a great system, and I think it's awesome. I think that every cleric who hits level 13 should just be ready to bring everybody back from the dead all the time because, well, how much more powerful can you be than to stop death? Moving right along. You know, there are times as a DM where you run into interesting things that aren't fully outlined, uh, and it's just good to have a concept of what to do in those situations. 
Currently, I'd like to talk about what happens when you've got an NPC that joins your player's party. Yikes. It's a tough situation to dance around because you really don't want to have somebody who is DM-powered being part of the team. At that point in time, the rest of the team kind of doesn't matter anymore because you've got an omnipotent being involved. Furthermore, that omnipotent being has all the answers, so why would anybody else need to help? In general, I think it's something to avoid. I've always avoided it. I never want to be a part of my team's party. In fact, at the times when I was part of my team's party, I did everything I could to get that NPC out. Because you don't really want that. Your job is to control everything else. I don't want an extra guy to keep track of in combat. That sucks. But I'll give you two examples of when it might happen, and these two are actually ones that happened to me. The first one, I was playing a module, and the team needed a guide to get through the wilderness to know where they were going. Okay. That's a valid reason, having a guide. And I did have that for a while, and her name was Eku. It's actually in one of the modules. I will not tell you which one, so we're not really spoiling anything, so just kind of, you know, whatever. Uh, and the secret with Eku was that she was actually a different kind of creature that was morphed into a humanoid shape. But the party didn't know that when they hired her to be the guide. And she never really showed up unless the party addressed her. In fact, after a little bit, they kind of forgot she was there, which I liked. I didn't really want them to be interacting with an NPC at all times, especially not when the NPC is guiding them places. Kind of wanted it to be a, yep, here's where you're going, and you guys take control from there. So that was that. There was one time, it was like early levels, and they were kind of going down in combat. And this other being that she was actually had some healing capabilities. So they were attacked by something, they were starting to go down, and everyone's like, oh no, what do we do? And suddenly she bursts out and, and becomes another creature and does some healing. And they're like, wow, I didn't know that could happen. And then the next time there was combat, she wasn't there. And they kept forgetting, right? That was the goal with her because I didn't want her to really get too involved. The other time, I was so... <laughs> I was frustrated. Um, it was a campaign that I was running. I think I was, it was like Lost Mine of Fandelver, I believe. Like the very early first thing you ever do module they were fighting some goblins and at one point in time they caught one they were going to interrogate him and they said here's the deal you are going to take us through this base and make sure that we know what's happening and they like kept kind of threatening him and like we're holding on to him and i was like okay cool they have a prisoner that's fine you know no big deal except for the fighter who kept like being nice to him and what and was like yeah, man, thanks for your help. You know, I really, you, you're really helping us out. You're doing, like, it was like being a good dude, and I was like, okay, they're going to keep him. They're going to try and keep this guy on their team. Now, I had two ways to go with this. Number one, he watched you kill all of his buddies. Probably doesn't want anything to do with you guys. He's here as a hostage. Or I could let the party have a little bit of fun. <laughs> Eventually, what happened was I created a system that, they didn't know about, but the more often they did good things, there would be a roll, and if it was a good enough roll, it would count as a plus or a minus, similar to a death save, but I think it was like five instead of three. And if they got to five positives before, you know, the end of whatever, he would become a level one adventurer, and I already had his character sheet picked out, and so finally they got to that, and I was like, congratulations, 
Joe Ghost the Goblin is now a level one adventurer. So he'd always be two levels under them, two or three. I think they were level three or four. He was just tagging along. And he made no decisions. He was a goblin who had originally been, you know, a part of a goblin gang that was following bugbears and all that stuff, right? Like, he didn't have anything. He wasn't a hero, but he officially became an adventurer at that point. And they loved him. It was super, they had a great time. There was a whole bunch of weird lore with him. And actually, I accidentally had Jokos deliver the final blow <laughs> to, to the big bad. That was a mistake. But they all thought it was great. They were ecstatic about the fact that little Jogos could do all this stuff. And it was fun. And then as we went into the next section of the campaign, he didn't go with them for some other reason and it was a big story thing and later in the campaign they saw him on a different plane and it was great but here's the thing there are some do's and don'ts to being a part of your team's party there, there's things to worry about you don't want them to think that you're going to save them every time it goes wrong you don't want them to think that they don't have to do anything because you're going to give them all the answers and they can just focus on fighting you got to make sure that there's still a balance to the game so in terms of the things that we don't want to do we don't want to make decisions right if if everyone is discussing what to do to do next you don't want your npc party member to be like well i think we should go this way because then the party gets to go okay is our dm trying to help us or trying to hurt us that shouldn't be a part of the discussion they should be taking the information they have and making those decisions for themselves you also don't really want to participate in combat that much unless it is requested or absolutely necessary jogos participated in combat but he was two or three character levels under the rest of the party so he didn't really make that much of a difference every so often he would deal an extra like d6 of damage maybe even a d4 so he wasn't that crazy powerful so i didn't mind adding a little bit of a damage boost every so often it wasn't really that big of a deal and eku the guide wouldn't do anything for the party except for that one time when they were almost dead at level two or three and i didn't feel like killing them that early <laughs> that's it that's the only time that they ever really came out you also don't really want to play the game as though you're a player because that, again, gives you a lot of power. The point of the players is that they don't know certain things and they have to make those decisions. You don't know immediately what the AC, HP, or damage output of a certain enemy is, so you kind of have to hedge your bets when you're going into combat. You don't know how many baddies there are. You don't see the entire dungeon. You only see what you have seen and what you're currently seeing. You don't know the answer to the puzzles. That's what a player is. And you, as the DM know all that stuff so to an extent there's not really that level of play the only thing that you would be accomplishing is being allowed to participate in combat but you also control the bad guys so there's never really a fair way to get that done so i would just kind of avoid that in general and the last thing you don't want to do is advise the party unless they ask generally speaking if you're advising the party you're basically making decisions because if you as the dm say in character well, I don't know about going that way. I bet there's something bad that way. The party's going to say, oh, there's a bad thing over there, and that's obvious. Your advice as an NPC member of the party doesn't come off as advice. It comes off as a hint. And we don't really want to give hints all that much. If you give a hint too many times, then they stop trying to figure things out on their own. But 
you can be a part of the party. Sometimes that's called for, as we just discussed. And here are the things that you do want to do. First of all, you want to remain neutral. If they're getting into an argument, you don't necessarily want to take sides. You don't necessarily want to jump in with your own opinions. If you can just immediately say, hey, you guys will figure this out. Be a be a, a servant to the party. It's like, hey, my opinions aren't, you know, you, you guys do what you want to do. Then they say, all right, this guy, I like having him around, but... But, I, you know, I'm focused on something else right now. The other thing you do want to do is be tactical in combat. Yes, you're controlling the bad guys, and I don't think that you should try and save the party, but you do want to be tactical in combat. If your NPC member of the party has a total damage output per turn of, let's say, 2d6 plus 4, but the rest of your party has, like, I don't know, total damage output, let's say, 2d8 plus 6 and maybe there's some bonus actions, and someone can cast Fireball, right? Like, if that's the case, why are you attacking? Why aren't you instead taking the help action to try and, you know, make sure that your rogue gets sneak attack all the time? Or why aren't you going up front and taking the dodge action, just being a distraction? Being that extra level of tactics in combat allows for a reason for you to be there without you necessarily being the hero. And the last one, kind of just talked about it, is be supportive. Play more support. You know, if you can maybe have an NPC who's a little bit of a healer, maybe just an extra D4 of health per turn might be great for a party who doesn't have a lot of HP and just wants to keep that up or maybe doesn't have a healer. And so this is the only amount of healing they're going to get. Again, the help action is fantastic, giving advantage to an attack roll that comes up next. All that stuff is great. If you can be supportive and add to the power of your players, as opposed to being another power that just increases the power level of the party, I think they're going to appreciate it a whole lot more and want to keep you around. Plus, this gives the players the power over the campaign, not the DM who already has all the answers. At the end of the day, we want the players to be able to be in control of their own story. And I think adding help to them is much more effective than adding another hero. Guys, I am so excited for Halloween, you have no idea. It has nothing to do with Halloween itself. I've been developing a Halloween one-shot that I plan on running. Now, to date myself a little bit here... I'm assuming this is going to go out after Halloween, but I am recording it before Halloween, so I don't know how the game is gone yet. Uh, but I am just so excited, like, I have to tell you about it. So let me give you a little bit of the lore of what's going on here. With our one-shots, the players are all members of the Adventurer's Guild. They take contracts that are brought to the guild, and the guild pays based on what they're accomplishing in the contract and what they're being paid uh, for the contract having been completed. This one comes from a place where there have been sightings of a mysterious house that only appears at night. And every morning the house is gone, and the, the people who go into the house that night don't ever come out. And they don't know what's going on with it, and it's very scary. There's always been an ominous presence coming from it, and the guild is going to check it out. So that's the basic lore of it, and you'll, we'll get some more lore as I explain the rest, but here's the fun part. Mechanically, this is basically going to run like Call of Duty Black Ops Zombies. I played Black Ops Zombies with my buddy all the time when, I was, when it first came out, so I'm just ecstatic about the fact that I get to run Black Ops Zombies, um, and it's going to run exactly the way you think. They're going to come in waves, 
uh, each of them getting progressively more and more difficult. Every fifth wave, there'll be a fun little different thing. Yes, they're hellhounds. In between the waves, they're going to stay in turns. And here's why. Because there are things to be accomplished. Yes, there's going to be a mystery box that dishes out magic items. Uh, yes, you're going to have to use some form of in-house currency. I'm thinking skulls, like the skulls of baddies that they like when they dissolve away, they leave a skull. Uh, you have to use that to open doors and use said mystery box and do all that stuff. So they have to f try and find a way out of this house because once they're all inside, the door disappears. Oops. Those are some fun out-of-combat mechanics. The other one I got from a module, and I won't tell you which one because I don't want to give anything away, but basically there are going to be three demonic spirits in the house, and they can possess a player. Once possessed, it'll give the player a really decent boost, some kind of really nice advantage, as though they're getting stronger. This is going to help, along with the mystery box, to allow those stronger and stronger waves to not be so dangerous and also kind of not last as long. It's supposed to be a one-shot, so we don't want it to last, you know, seven, eight hours and hopefully have to get to a second. No, we want it to stay one, one session and we're good to go. But the deal with this demonic spirit possession is that if a certain thing happens, then there will be a negative effect that happens to you. And if that negative effect or if that condition happens too much, then there's an ultimate negative. And that ultimate negative probably will lead to your death. So what do we do here? How does this game actually go? Well, the plan is they go in, they explore for a minute, realize they can't go too far, read a thing, the door disappears, and then wave one starts. They stick with the same initiative the whole time, and we're good from there. Then they use those skulls to get into different rooms. They find the rooms where the spirits are, or if they get into a dangerous spot, the spirit will go to them, and then they get possessed. Or they don't get possessed. There's a possibility they don't get possessed at all. There are a couple of ways to beat this. The spirits, there will be a way to destroy them, but if they are possessing someone and that someone dies, they go away. Their spirit disappears from the house. If all the spirits are destroyed, if all the demonic spirits are destroyed, the front door appears again. They can leave. And then the house disappears and never comes back. That's one way. Um, if they survive the night, so they defeat the final wave of zombies they win so those are the two ways that everyone survives or at least most people survive there's also the option that one of the waves of zombies just kills them and they can't get out that's another way that this one shot could end with everyone dying uh, which i kind of think is a decent ending but we all know since this is Halloween, it's all horror-themed. What is the best way to end a horror film? Only one person survives. So here's how this goes down, right? And I'm, I'm stoked about this. There's four people going to be playing in it. And there will be three spirits in the house, three demonic spirits. If three people get possessed and the three of them all die, that means the spirits go away, right? Well, that's one of the ways to end the mission. So three of them will be dead one of them will live. That one will get out of the house and just have to live with the fact that they went into this house and three of them are gone. And I'm just, I'm just 
so excited about it. The demons are all themed based on different horror movie emotions that they call upon, uh, like dread and abandonment and all that stuff. And it's just going to be spooky scary. And I am so excited. And hopefully I'll tell you about the, the way it goes in another episode. Zibidubop. Thank you so much for listening. If you know anybody who you think might enjoy what I've got to say, send them my way and I will see you next time on Dungeon Man Dragon Master. That was the Dragon Master. Oh.